Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man. But, Dan, those annuals, this is, I mean, like the takes, they're, 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 they're ice cold when you talk about these annuals counting. They don't count. The annuals do not count. That is my hot take. Go with it. Well, you know, actually, a, a new member to our Slack jumped in and said, can we put a final vote to this? And finally opened up annuals counting versus not counting. And Mark, the only way you're going to find out the answer is if you come join us in the Slack. <laughs> so uh, that that might that might go never known. Anyway, welcome, everybody, to the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks, as always, for everybody for joining us for this review episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. I feel like if I do that, I'm admitting that the slack counts. If you want to swing (laughs) along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. So this is the perfect time to start listening. I'm going to do something I I don't know that I really want to do, but I'm going to beg here. And I'm going to beg people to go and check out our Amazing Spider Talk back issues podcast. That's where all of our oldest episodes go. Everything past 300 episodes back in our feed. And of course, that feed has some of the best content that Mark and I have produced. We've come a long way since the beginning of our show, but... The beginning of the show did have some of our greatest gems. You can listen to Mark and I slowly learning to love each other uh, (laughs) over those early episodes, you know, kind of talking with some of the industry legends. But here's what I why I'm begging. Not only would I love it if you guys could check out and subscribe to that feed, I would love to get some reviews on that podcast feed. Go give us five stars. Tell us what you think of our content, because right now that feed, you know, it goes kind of like unseen when you search for Spider-Man in our podcast players. And, you know, with a couple more reviews from you guys, I know it would make a really big difference. And some of our listeners would, would get to know about that uh, podcast feed other than hearing me beg them to uh, go check it out. What's new?
Mark, what are we doing today? Yeah, man, I don't want to hear you beg much longer. But so <laughs> today on the show, Dan and I are going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 3. This issue was written by Zeb Wells with interior and cover art featuring pencils by John Romita Jr. with inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Marcio Menez, and letters by VCs Joe Caramanga. This issue was first released on June 8th, 2022. Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened in this issue? I'm going to try to, but I, I fear I have a lot of bit to tell you about what happens in this <laughs> issue. But here, here we go. Paul makes his way to Peter's place to tell him off about his late night calls to MJ. MJ asks him not to hurt Peter, but he expresses that he's not a violent guy. You know, except for that at one time. He encounters the debt collector who he's looking for Peter again, and after learning about Peter's medical bills, pays the guy off for $1,500, which frankly is kind of cheap for medical bills in America, <laughs> uh, I, I think. Maybe I'm just going to the wrong place. I mean, does places. he not have a deductible um, or something? I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> I don't know. Spider-Manning doesn't give you insurance. I, I, I don't know how it all works. But anyway, Paul says he just doesn't like to see someone get hit when they're down if he knew about peter's life speaking of which and being down spider-man is chained up in a subway tunnel in harlem and is being beaten mercilessly by tombstone tombstone is getting revenge on spider-man for stopping his sale to the rose and is wondering why he put his nose in where it wasn't wanted spider-man says it's because he's a good guy and tombstone is a bad guy this prompts Tombstone to send his men upstairs with a box of roses. Meanwhile, Randy and Janice eat in a diner where Janice proposes to Randy, catching him off guard. They agree to get married and think to call Robbie, but unfortunately, Robbie doesn't pick up his phone. Oh, what could it be? <laughs> it's a Tombstone story and Robbie is missing. Back in Harlem, Tombstone gives a speech about lions and how we never blame animals for their aberrant behaviors. We blame humans for abusing them. But when a human is bad, we just call them bad guys. They decided what people are, not why they are the way they are. Across town, Robbie is kidnapped by White Rabbit. Tombstone explains why he is the way he is and why he has filed his teeth. Turns out, surprise, he was bullied as a quiet kid and filed his teeth down to points. Hence the teeth and his whispering. Then, Tombstone's men show up, disguised as the Roses' men. They are going to go up and shoot up 125th Street, killing civilians and triggering a superhero response that would wipe out the Rose from the board in the gang war. Spider-Man is powerless to escape. Tombstone orders him dead and threatens to murder Robbie for allowing his son to come after his daughter. What will Spider-Man do? Everything seems stacked against him. And that is Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, number three. So, Mark, you know, we've liked the past two issues, I think, a fair bit, how the story is being told so far. What did you think of uh, this Volume 6, number three? And, and I guess, how is it making you feel about Volume 6 so far? Yeah, I mean, this I, I felt this was another very solid entry in, in this storyline. I mean, you know, we're... we're we're going to talk about this in a few seconds in terms of like the decompressed nature of the storyline, which, you know, like is is what it is. I, I in, 
general don't love that style. I, 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 I guess I'm greedy. I just want you to tell me what's happening. I don't, I, I, I don't need to go, uh, you know, every two weeks and, and, you know, just move one more inch on the board, so to speak. You know, we, we said this a bit during Beyond, but I, I, I think honestly, this is more true now. I mean, this, this feels like the classic, you know, Jerry Conway, not just because it's Tombstone, but like, you know, kind of storytelling where we're just we're just trying to tell stories. You know, like I I, I said it for several years recently, like, just give me stories, give me good stories. And and I feel like we're doing that now. Like we're, we're, we're telling a, a good story about some really menacing characters and Spider-Man down on his luck and again, you know, back against the wall. And, you know, it looks like the odds are against him and. I don't know how he's going to pull this one out. And I'm getting to the point right now where at the end of every issue, I'm like, what's going to happen next? I need to read the next one. Not like, oh, God, how are they going to keep stringing us along? I I feel like we're in a good place with Spider-Man right now. What about you? Yeah, I feel very similarly. It's funny. This felt kind of like a bottle episode, which is kind of a trope in television where they keep characters kind of like like in a bottle, like confined to one location. If you've seen Breaking Bad it's the fly episode where they're chasing after a fly in in the cookery for the whole episode. And here we're basically the whole time in this abandoned subway uh, tunnel. And, you know, comics don't really have the the need to do a bottle episode per se. I mean, yes, <laughs> it's not saving are, the budget. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, there are things that strain, you know, an artist more than, than other things. But um, in many ways, I actually think this kind of stuff is maybe the hardest stuff you could do as an artist of a comic book is do a really character oriented scene. You know, I think you could read this comic and go, well, not much happened. It is very decompressed, but uh, honestly, like this was maybe one of the best stake raising episodes that I've read in a Spider-Man comic in quite some time. You know, the just the personal nature of it and the way that this issue was used to just elevate the brutal nature of Tombstone, not only beating up Peter Parker, but also like the kind of elevation of his mindset, you know, like how he kind of treats and sees the world and his threat at the end because we got into his history and his approach to things and who he is at this moment. Right. He told last issue I'm not going to be who you know me as your father anymore. I'm going to be someone much darker than that. This felt like a real return to form for, for tombstone. And so the threat at the end of the issue carried a tremendous amount of weight. And, you know, it may not be the two tons of metal from the end of the master planner arc, but I do feel like kind of placed in a similar situation to that, which is how in the world will Spider-Man get out of this and save which seems to be like a lot of people who are going to be put in harm's way. And so it wasn't substantial, this issue, but it's very well paced. And I think it does exactly what it sets out to do. It's the most decompressed it's been since JMS, but I think it also carries the kind of like level of storytelling and style that JMS did. And so I'm, I'm just really digging this. I, I, I'm really in on this run. Yeah, I mean, I would say what this comic lacked in plot it makes up for in characterization, which I'm never going to really complain about. And and specifically characterization with Tombstone. I mean, like you mentioned, I mean, like we get 
elements of an origin story here, but I think even more holistically here, like this whole arc kind of feels like a proper reintroduction to Tombstone. I mean, obviously we had the great Jerry Conway stories from, you know, the late 1980s, early 1990s that really delved into Tombstone. And I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, those are kind of without, you know, those are the top echelon Tombstone stories. But he's he's always kind of come across as a background character, you know, like, I mean, like even look into like Into the Spider-Verse. I mean, he's just kind of there. Not much oomph behind the character and and motive and you know he's just a bad guy who does like you know street level stuff and yeah i mean this 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 issue more so than the the first two but i mean in concert with the first two for sure really like captures the menace of the character and and like just like just how diabolical and and what a sociopath he is and in in spending the time and evolving that as you kind of alluded to, it, it gives the story stakes and it makes you care about how is Spider-Man actually going to respond here? I mean, like, you know, he's he's getting, you know, he's getting his ass kicked throughout this this comic and kind of making quips left and, and right. You know, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, get, and, you know, he's throwing his quips in there and, you, and, you know, like you're kind of like. I think without the characterization here and without putting that effort in, you know, you're just kind of like it's it's it all it's it's going to feel hollow. But instead, like now you're just like, oh, man, like I I, I know in my heart Peter's going to prevail here because he's got to. It's his comic. <laughs> but but like, how's he going to do it? And I hope he does it because this I mean, like, you know, we'll we'll get to it in a few minutes. But like. This this plot that Tombstone has has hatched here is really diabolical. It's really bad. <laughs> like like holy crap. Like I I don't remember the last time a villain was just this like awful and menacing about what he was planning to do. Yes, it's it's not really a lot happening, but like if you're going to pull back on like plot here there and everywhere and really focus on developing these characters so that when stuff does happen you care about the outcomes i'm all for it yeah and this feels like kind of like a welcome replacement for kingpin i mean at the end of devil's reign he you know sailed off with typhoid <laughs> mary into the sunset right so to speak. like you do and um yeah, sailing with Typhoid Mary used to mean something very different uh, back in the day. But I, I feel like this is, you know, we're, we are talking about a power vacuum. And really, this is kind of like a conniving vacuum, if you will, if you'll allow me uh, something as silly as that. Like, this reminds me of, like, Ultimate Spider-Man Kingpin, which is, like, a guy that's willing to, like, use pre-existing powers and use them to his benefit, you know, and... He, he kind of talks about like to Spider-Man about like, hey, b- basically that he's like using him, you know, at, at not, not only as bait, but also like, you know, he's going to use the Rose's signature to lure in like the Avengers or whoever. And he's also like talked about that Spider-Man, which is like you showed up here and you reliably showed up here because you have such a simplistic view on who people are in the world. And, you know, this good guy, bad guy thing. And you didn't need to be involved in this story. And and I'm interested to see how that kind of, you know, plays itself off by the end of the tale. Because seeing Spider-Man, like, scream back at him, you know, hey, like, I've learned my lesson. It's, like, kind of, like, really haunting. And, and maybe not a lesson we loved Spider-Man to have, right? He, like, is classically butting in on on all this stuff. You know, and talking a little bit more 
in depth about the brutality of this comic. I mean, like, like this is, you know, and, and you know, this is to me, this is why you bring in J.R. J.R. Because I'm like, I'm thinking of like, you know, Man Without Fear and, and you know, all those great books of the of the past that Ramita did that that kind of have a similar tone and, and visual style. But like, I mean, there is like these pages are just blood soaked. Um, they I mean, this is this is really har- harrowing, brutal stuff. I guess we kind of got that with Kindred in the Nick Spencer run where, you know, like, I mean, there was that one issue where like what, where Kindred like killed Spider-Man and revived him like a couple of dozen times or something like that. But like, you know, that was kind of mystical and magical in nature. And you didn't quite understand if it was even real or not because of how it was being done. Whereas like, this is just raw, brute power, menace, bad guys being bad, you know, like, and, and yeah, Tombstone is giving this speech about, you know, shades of gray and you don't know what you know and, you know, look at the lion. But like at the end of the day, like not to not to, not to take all of the f- philosophizing and, and throwing it out the window. But like what Tombstone's doing here is is really immoral and really vicious and really bad. So like it's just it's just a, it's a rawness to this book that we have not seen in a very, very long time. And and like a little like unnerving in that regard not not in a bad way but like i i like i'm i'm reading through this and i'm like wow like i'm i i was not expecting it to be like you know again to say this term like blood soaked throughout i mean like it it really surprised me i find it like shocking too like he specifically says that they're going to shoot up 125th street which is like a main part of harlem Right. Like there have been dozens of songs about 125th Street and, you know, it's really kind of the heart of that neighborhood. And so for him to like go up there and like kill civilians, it feels like he's like hurting his own family in a way. Like I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I mean, it is extra brutal, you know, that he's like like just going around his own neighborhood and going to unleash his men just to kind of like trick uh, you know, someone more powerful into doing his work for him. What do, what do you think about Spider-Man being like physically outmatched in, in this way? I mean, I'm willing to buy the like, you can't break out of these handcuffs because they're like, I don't know, adamantium or whatever. You know, I know some people like often like to bicker about like just how strong Spider-Man is. Like he could take on the X-Men. For me, like, like I kind of like a Spider-Man that can be kind of physically outmatched in, in this way. I know it's hard to reconcile with a guy who can, like, easily lift a car over his head. Having him be a little more grounded in his power set, to me, makes him more vulnerable and takes me back to the Ditko days. I think that's how I like my Spider-Man. Do you think about that at all when you have someone like Tombstone, who, like, ostensibly is a guy that's really strong, beating up someone with superpowers like Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, I, I I get what you're saying, but like, it doesn't bother me because I feel like, you know, with the setup over the last two issues, I mean, like, you know, Spider-Man is basically a wounded animal falling into a trap here. You know what I mean? Like, so, so the deck is stacked against him from the start. So like, you know, Tombstone can like punch him out a few times and, you know, make him cough up blood. But like, it's not like... It's not like Spider-Man, went, you know, went in with full strength, you know, clear-headed, not not induced with any, you know, drugs or poisons or c- compactors or anything like that, like that that he's been through the first two issues. 
you, you know, and, and, and ends up getting his, 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 you know, butt handed to him by Tombstone. Instead, it's, I mean, like, you know, the deck is stacked against him at the onset. You know, it's the, it's the turning of the screw. I mean, it's just like every, every, every page, every, you know, twist here just further backs Peter's back against the wall. And, and to, to me, that's that, like you said, like, like that's very Dicko-esque. It, 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 it's how the character works best in peril. I mean, like, you know, like, you know, when Doc Ock is threatening to blow up the world and, you know, but like Spider-Man doesn't really feel like he is outmatched in any way. Like what are actually the stakes here? Whereas like, you know, like he's, he's chained, he's beaten. And now Tombstone's about to shoot up a bunch of innocent people. Like you really like feel like the stakes in that and like the desperation of, of Spider-Man here. And, and, you know, so like it doesn't, I'm not going to get caught up in like the, the power set and like, should he be able, you know, can, can spider strength break blah, blah, kind of metal, whatever. Like he was, he was beaten and battered coming into this. And now it's like, you know, he's, it's, it's even further against him. So it works for me. I'm not going to fight it. So what, what do we think about tombstones backstory? We spend a, a little bit of time on this. I got to be honest, like between like Carnage and maybe it's just because I saw the Carnage movie, but like Carnage and Doc Ock and and it seems like every one of Spider-Man's villains were like bullied as a kid or beaten up by their father, uh, their drunk father. We'll add it. It's always alcohol. And that's why they are the way they are. It could be that it's just like a recency bias that like a lot of them have kind of been leaning on this or that it seems like kind of like obvious storytelling, but I, I'm kind of like, like I I thought this was very artfully done. You know, the idea of like the quiet kid that like has the other kid leaning close and bites his ear and like, and that's kind of the origin of like the quiet sharp tooth tombstone. But I'm like kind of exhausted by this trope a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's 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 a bit played out, but at the same token, I'm I'm going to defend it by saying that, you know, I've said this for years both on this show and, you know, in other media where I've given commentary like to me like the quintessential Spider-Man villain is, you know, the the polar end of the idea of power and responsibility. I mean, you know, Peter obviously is a bullied kid, gets these powers, doesn't initially use them responsibly, pays the price. With great power must also come great responsibility. Whereas when you, you know, flip that on its ear, look at characters like Doc Ock, Electro, Carnage, Eddie Brock, etc. Like, you know, like the characters that work best as as villains, I mean, they're the antithesis in terms of power and responsibility. They get the power and instead of choosing to be responsible about it, choose to be irresponsible about it. So like, you know, as long as that, like that through line is consistent, I don't get, I, I mean, I, I get it. It's, it's played out, but it works for me. Like, like, like I, I like, those are the villains I want to see against Spider-Man because I like that, that mirror image, you know, or, or dark mirror of image your bizarro world image or whatever of, of, of the idea of power. I mean, like, I got to be honest with Tombstone and and maybe this is on me. I'm not I'm not trying to like fault the the storytellers at this, but like I've never actually thought of his teeth as a defining characteristic. I mean, like I've always kind of thought of them as like a big big cruel dude with with 
a decent amount of strength, but like, you know, this was like the first that the really, that his teeth really were like pointed out to me. And I'm like, you know, pun intended, I guess. It was interesting to me, like, like, you know, that, that he kind of did that to himself, that he, that he, you know, defaced himself or whatever, like, you know, like mutilated his own body to give himself additional power. That, that was kind of an interesting twist to me for, uh, for sure. What about you? The way you put it, I, I feel like I'm complaining about, how all of Spider-Man's villains are the result of science accidents. So, so I think, I think you did a decent job, uh, you know, responding to that. And in regards to like tombstones teeth, to me, it was kind of a defining uh, attribute just because it's such an odd art choice. You know, like th- this is maybe the first time it's really been put a lot of attention on it more, more than anything else. It's like, Oh, like, like we're making this a key part of his origin more than just kind of like a funky, part of his design. I I'm, I'm excited by that. At least I think it's kind of tying all of this in together in an interesting way. Well, Hey Mark, let's stop with this review for a second and tell everybody about our slack. It's the thing that we do to bring everybody together. While we might be creating a gang war in the comics, right? We're creating a gang love fest online. Wow. That, that transition is something else, Dan. Well, hundreds of listeners, <laughs> hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack, where there's a gang war of love. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I hang out in the Slack all the time where we have the poll up about the annual scouting that Mark will never see. I promise you he will never see it. But besides that, we've been uh, talking excitedly this week about the debut of Miss Marvel on Disney+, Plus, which is kind of amazing to just even see existing. You know, something born so shortly ago, having such a strong, like, you know, presence in in you know marvel's disney plus slate and i imagine the marvel universe so that's been fun to talk about with everybody so if you want to join our awesome spider-man community just be sure to follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi and once you're there you know let us know what you thought of this review and where you're coming from Uh, we'd love to know more about you and your thoughts on spider-man and speaking of thoughts on spider-man mark let's get back to our review of amazing spider-man volume six number three you got it, man. So let's talk a little bit about the art, the J.R.J.R. Menyes connection. I said this earlier, like I was reading this comic and it just felt like a J.R.J.R. Daredevil book from back in the day in a good way. You know, no rain, but, you know, I, I guess the rain was displaced with a lot of blood and, and mouth sweat and everything else kind of. You know, other other fluids coming out of Peter's uh, bones and mouth and and eyes and whatnot. So, but but very raw, very 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 violent, but perfect JRJR here. Yeah, what I liked about this so much is that I mean, yes, you said the beautiful brutality for sure. I mean, like the way he like visually punctuates, you know. Peter getting beaten up, uh, you know, is, is something to behold, especially that like first opening splash of him just chained in the middle of the subway tracks. What I love about this, and I think JRGR is kind of uniquely good at this is he really grounds the scene in like a place. 
And I don't mean like a subway. I mean like the arrangement of how everybody is in the scene. You've got Spider-Man, you know, on the tracks. There's a spotlight on him and these kind of gangs, you know, members and, and Tombstone hanging out nearby. But the way that like the spotlight plays into the emotions of the scene, it really feels like a like a professional comic artist or even like film cinematographer or director would do in terms of how they use visuals to punctuate things. And, and, you know, I could see him kind of thinking like, okay, if the light is in the space here and it's casting it this way, you know, if I flip the camera, then the characters are going to be in silhouette and I can use that to, you know, uh, like create this creepy edge on tombstone. And, Really, I think this is the kind of thing you rarely see, except for from real masters of the uh, of the art form in comics. And it's something that like feels very cinematic, you know, from like really good, like visual storytellers. And, you know, I think having like a so-called, as I said earlier, a bottle episode like this really lets him like invest in a in a place and how the characters move in that space to create these kind of dramatic scenes. And I've reread this issue many times as I have been with the Wells run so far. And I just, you know, I gained so much every time just by looking at like how JRJR uses the art to like communicate what he wants to communicate with and, and creates a real like believable reality within the scene, uh, which I think helps kind of ground the violence in, in a way. So, you know, to me, like th- this is something he's particularly good at this visual pacing and construction you know, like whatever. I don't need to sing JRJR's praises. Everybody else does, but I'm going. I'm I'm going to like. You read something like this, and you understand like why he is the legend that he is. Was there anything visually that really didn't work for you in this uh, uh, issue? Well, I've never loved JRJR's depiction of kids in comics, and you get something like um, Hit Girl from Kick Ass is was always kind of like odd construction. But I think they largely work here. In this one, I mean, they've always been kind of exaggerated. They have these huge heads on thin bodies, which which is not un, untrue of kids. You know, kids have big heads like there's really no way around it. But um, it's definitely exaggerated here in a way that's kind of like, you know, you're reminded of the artwork. But I, I think it does add some menace to young Lonnie Lincoln. So but I think the scene that didn't work for me and we've praised him in the past for his kind of like character expressions and work. This scene felt like a little off to me was the Janice and Randy scene where they're at the diner. Like there's this series of close-ups where their faces are like kind of blank. And you know, that might've been the case, but like compare this to something like an ultimate Spider-Man Bagley scene. And you know, they're quite different in, in their emotive qualities. And that scene just kind of like, I didn't know what he was going for playing the characters so flatly. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like, I, I, I don't disagree with that. At the same time, like, I, from a storytelling standpoint, I kind of like the juxtaposition of that scene in the midst of all this carnage around it. I mean, it's very, you know, like, I mean, clearly they're going for the Romeo and Juliet vibe. This kind of scene of serenity in, in this mass of violence and blood and carnage, but... At the same token, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, there, are <laughs> I, I, if you got like Bagley, a la Ultimate, you know, Peter 
talking to MJ, I mean, like that, that scene really would have hit it out of the park. And instead it was just kind of like, oh, okay, I get what they're doing here. Um, I kind of like it, but visually it doesn't necessarily click for me. Yeah. And I, I, I'll add to this too, like just for praise, I think Scott Hanna's inks have been killer as, as always. I mean, no one does JRJR better. And, um, you know, Marcio Menez, his colors, I loved how kind of like he played this idea of like the rich coloring versus the kind of highlight heavy desaturated stuff for when the spotlight is hitting Spider-Man versus, you know, uh, you know, when, when he's kind of in the shadows, but also the flashbacks being this kind of rich brown color that made the red of the blood on the kid's ear really pop. Like I, I thought that was all really strong. Although there was a page in this comic and I, I thought of you, Mark, when I was reading it, because you described that issue you got last week as having printing errors where it was really desaturated or lightly inked. And I got to a page in my comic where the whole page was desaturated and it wasn't the flashback and it wasn't also because of the spotlight. And I felt like it was a mistake and I was really worried that my comic had been damaged in the way that yours was. And so now I'm asking, like, did it like there's a page where Tombstone is standing over Spider-Man and the spotlight is kind of on him. But the whole thing is really desaturated. Did you come across something like that when you were reading through it? Well, so spoiler alert, I have not actually received my hard copy of this comic yet. It was I had some issues getting it from my my store. They have it. They were shipping it to me and they had. So I, I only read this. I ordered a digital copy through Marvel.com and. So, no, I didn't see anything there that struck me as visually off. But that's an interesting. I'm going to have to look for that when my hard copy comes in, hopefully this week. Yeah, I'm going to have to bust out that digital code to see if it's present there. I think it is a part of the actual coloring, but it just really stood out to me as like breaking the rules of the coloring that Menyez had established. And it's not enough to really like break the comic for me, but it threw me off. And maybe just because I had you in the back of my head saying, you know, I got a misprinted issue here and I'm like nervous every time I flip through one of these now. So do you want to talk about Paul? I mean, I guess we should. Right. I mean, we didn't see him in issue two, but we we, we got Paul back in issue three. I mean, look, <laughs> I, I still don't know what to make of this guy. And that's probably by design. Let's be honest here. Uh, you know, like obviously shrouded in mystery. You know, we, we, we have him kind of coming at Pete like, you know, he's going to he's going to talk about, you know, those inappropriate phone calls to MJ. But then when the when the bill collector comes with, you know, the infamous fifteen hundred dollar bill, which is not that big. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like it's it's a banana, Michael. How much could it cost? Eleven dollars? I mean, you know, like what, what do medical bills cost these days? Anyway, but I, I'm we're about to sound really privileged that we could just drop fifteen hundred dollars. But like, I, you know, it, I've just gone through like fifteen hundred dollars of surgery on my cat. Well, I, I mean, you know, not I'm not, I'm not going to specify what, but I mean, I recently like had a doctor's appointment where they said. You know, your insurance might cover this or you might get billed six thousand dollars for it. So, you know what I mean? Like, so that's 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 the reality most people are living with when it comes to medical bills. So, yeah, saying fifteen hundred dollars is like this, you know, astronomical, you know, late fee. I'm just kind of like, oh, OK. You know, I mean, you know, where's where's well, Peter? especially for being in the hospital for as long as. Yeah, for like six months or whatever it was. So anyway, I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, 
come on, you got to give me more than this. But I, I, I get it. They're not going to give me more than this. That this, this, this is, this is going to be the mystery that gets drawn out in terms of what's the deal with this guy. You know, we all have to kind of like just eat our vegetables and deal with it. I think. I don't know. What about what? what, what what's your takeaway with Paul so far? I'm still caught up on the me- medical bills thing. Like, you know, like, like Marvel is the world outside your window, but maybe maybe the Marvel universe is actually a utopia. Yeah, right. Where, 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 where medical bills are are that small. Yeah, they they have like like Bernie is president in the in the Marvel universe, and they have like socialized healthcare. Um, what what are you gonna do? Any anyway? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm with you. Like, I don't know what to make of Paul, and it's definitely intentional. And I think it's kind of playing off our expectations, which is like, you just expect this guy to be like bad news. Right. And yet like everything about him seems like kind of genuine, you know, he, he's going over there to kind of like support MJ and tell Peter like, Hey, like stop calling her. She asked you to stop calling her. And and he, he pays off the medical bills. But then there's that really kind of interesting line where, and first of all, like this conversation is interesting because we don't hear MJ's half of it, right? We only get Paul's half. And so there's a bunch of implied things. Like he says, I love you too, which we can, means we can assume MJ told him, I love you. And then they get this little banter about whether or not he's like vi- a violent guy and that he hurt someone in the past who he says deserved it. I don't know if that, like the implication is it was, it was Peter or somebody else. You know, MJ has her own history with, abusive men in her life and in her uh, sister's life, you know, like uh, that line could be very playful or it could be like a kind of interesting insight into maybe this guy isn't, isn't all good, you know, but he, he seems good. But then like the $1,500, he says he's interested in doing it because he doesn't like to see someone get hit when they're down. But then you got to ask, like, maybe he's part of this like keeping people away from Peter, right? Like this debt collector, this guy, Paul sees it as a way to keep people away from Peter in in, in some way. Or or just that he feels responsible for Peter being in the situation that he's in. I mean, it could be either or, you know what I mean? Like, you know, but yeah, I, I, I definitely see what you're saying there and I don't, I don't disagree with it. I mean, I, I, I will say I, I, and this is not so much a Paul thing, but kind of a, a capper to that scene with the bill collector was I, I, I enjoyed the bill collector kind of ending it by saying, you know, like this cutaway of, well, you know, I wouldn't worry too much about that guy. He's probably curled up in bed right now. And, you know, meanwhile, the, the you know, the transition is Peter getting the crap kicked out of him. And it's just like, you know, to me, you know, I know there's been a lot of teeth gnashing from some Spider-Man fans about, Oh, why, why, you know, why, why do we have to get Peter down on his luck again? And whatever. I, I, I feel like that's like been 90% of the character's history. What are you possibly complaining about? But whatever. But at the same it's time, it's also a great transition. Yeah. Well, know? a great like, transition, like, like a really cheeky transition. Yeah, absolutely. But like to the larger point is like, I mean, you go through all those Dicko and Ramita issues and Jerry Conway and Ross Andrew. I mean, like, you know, through history, like what is kind of like the common denominator of Peter is that, you know, because he is constantly letting people down, people think people don't think, Peter's a good guy, you know, like, and, and I, I like that, that kind of 
circle back here with with this. I mean, it's you know, yes, we've already established that Peter's down on his luck. That people are mad at him. You know, he's persona non grata right now. But it's like you know, even like even the little people, if you will, or the people who have like a very superficial impact on his life. You know, the bill collectors. I mean, they're just like ah, this guy's probably you know, kicking back with a Mai Tai somewhere right now. And it's like, no, I mean, like, it's good to, it, you know, like, I, I like pointing that out. Like, you know, clearly I can't see this guy. He's not answering his door. He's not answering his phone calls. He must be a total delinquent garbage human being. Meanwhile, he's, you know, trying to save 125th Street from getting shot up by a mobster. It's, it was just a good, a good little reminder of that trope. I mean, you know, we talked about the tropes earlier of, you know the vill- the that you know the, the the bullied villain, but like that's that's to me a, a better trope in terms of like Peter just being total dirt and mud in the eyes of the public and and still pr- you know proceeding on as Spider Man anyway. And just like a, as a capper on Paul, it's like uh, anybody's guess is as good as anybody else's. I think the book clearly wants to kind of play that line. You know, it's giving us just enough information. And kind of feeding on our own inherent skeptic, you know, uh, about this. So does this one bother you? I was going to say, so which Osborne family member is Paul? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) I mean, does this continue to bother you for the mystery box stuff? Or are you kind of just like, all right, I'm accepting this. And like... I, like there's a there seems to be a plan and and I'm hanging around for a little while. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm there. I'm at that point now. I mean, it's you know like I I I don't love that this is the the construct that we're operating within, but like I'm I'm past complaining about it and like just going along with it <laughs> and and enjoying enjoying the other elements like this the the true blue Spider-Man storyline elements to it. And like, you know, the Paul and MJ and the kids and that stuff. I mean, you know, we'll 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 find that out. I mean, like if you're going to keep giving me good Spider-Man stories in the midst of that, then I'm OK. <laughs> so let's speaking of good Spider-Man stories, let's get to our grade. Uh, we, I think we gave the first issue a B plus and the second issue a B. I'm go. I'm I'm a B plus on this one. I, I really I, I just liked the the stakes here and the menace of it all. Like I I, I liked this. I, I, it's a high B plus because I think I, I like this even a little bit more than the first issue. Wow, I'm gonna give this one a B plus too. Uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, I I think like if it can pull off the end of this story with all of this buildup, you know, I think we're headed into the kind of territory that you and I long have wanted to be in, which is like really. Spider-Man stories with a real sense of like weight and gravity and choice and, and consequence to them. And I think that could re all of this work that's been done so far could lead to a really satisfying payoff. Yeah. If you find this show entertaining and valuable, as always, please consider supporting us on the Patreon. But you know, if, if you can't, we would love to have you recommend amazing Spider-Man to a friend but again, if you're able to, why not check out our Patreon? Yeah, we can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. We are constantly making exclusive content for our members. 
Yeah, and um, you know, if you've a, you're a lapsed patron or you want to start new, it doesn't really matter. It's always a great time to jump on board. You know, especially if you really want to keep up with our content here for this Wells JRJR run, which of course you want to because it's an awesome run so far. So why not take the $3.99, the price of a new comic, and put it towards a month subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. That way you'll hear each of these Patreon-exclusive review podcasts of every issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week they come out instead of waiting for them to arrive in our public podcasting feed. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. We've recently commissioned Juan Ferreira to depict a black suit Spider-Man and Daredevil to help memorialize our transition into the Peter David era of spectacular Spider-Man. Plus, every episode we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by our artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. And I'll just say this, like I'm expecting a baby soon and probably by the time you're hearing this, my baby will have already arrived. And so your Patreon money really does help us keep everything afloat so Mark can keep things going while I'm on paternity leave. <laughs> yes, our podcast offers paternity leave, but only thanks to you guys. So thanks again to everybody who supports us and is considering supporting us because they help us keep the show going through major life changes of which Mark and I have had a few since we started the show 10 years ago, which <laughs> makes sense. 10 years is a lot of time yes. in anybody's life. But Mark, it's that time, right? Yeah, of course. It's time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friend, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel. So, Mark, until we wait a lifetime for the F train to stop in the Bronx, <laughs> what's our motto? It's with great podcasts. There must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't miss the next installment.